Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an OSC podcast, we will explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, businesses, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. And, and we had to completely think differently as a medical professional in my usual day-to-day work and conversations with families to even begin to understand to think about, think in a whole new way about what may be at the core issue of why health outcomes were not improving. And so it really required us to have a big culture change. And that was not a flip of the switch and a new referral form that I was thinking was gonna be so easy because I can write prescriptions all day and it means nothing. It doesn't impact the health of people. What actually impacts their health is whether they have food and stable housing. Hello and welcome to Talk Justice. I'm your host, Jason Taché. In this episode, we're going to talk about how people's legal and medical problems are intertwined by learning about medical legal partnerships. To accomplish this, I'm joined by three guests. Bethany Hamilton is the co-director of the National Center for Medical Legal Partnership at the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University. Rakuya Trice is both the Deputy Director of Indiana Legal Services and the organization's Director of Medical Legal Partnerships. Finally, Dr. Don Hout is the CEO of Eskenazi Health Center in Indiana. Thank you all for being with us today. Now, I think in the popular mind, the relationship between doctor and lawyer is one of acrimony and conflict. I think my mind initially goes to medical malpractice. Right? I went to law school. That's exactly what I'm trying to think about. But what we're talking about today is the opposite of this. It's a promising partnership between the legal and medical professionals called medical legal partnerships or MLPs. Now, Bethany, I was hoping you could start us off by doing a little table setting and just give us the broad strokes. What is uh, a medical legal partnership and how common are they in the United States? Glad you asked, Jason. Well, first, um, thank you uh, for welcoming us all here today. Um, you know, we are a mixture of disciplines right here uh, on the call, so we're not um, in any sort of adversarial setting right now. This is an example of the partnership and how it plays out. We're coming together, as we like to define it at the, at the National Center, to really talk about how MLPs or medical legal partnership or that intervention where you bring legal and healthcare professionals together to collaborate in order to help those patients address what we broadly call uh, the social determinants of health. And at the National Center, we've been, you know, up to speed on how the field has expanded that social determinants of health uh, definition to make sure we are clear. We're not just talking about uh, social factors, but we're also talking about the economic, the environmental, the political factors that really uh, contribute to the health disparities and may have some sort of remedy in civil law. So that's the basic definition of medical legal partnership. Um, and I agree with you. Yeah, you know, the as soon as you say doctors and lawyers automatically, are, you know, our minds go to this place of medical malpractice or something that is very adversarial or acrimonious in nature. Um, but uh, this is, uh, you know, a part of what MLPs represent is getting beyond that and looking at how we can make patients and communities uh, healthier. And, and are, are these common across the United States? Are these unique? In my opinion, not enough yet, and I think <laughs> I think we'll all agree. So around the country, um, where where we are now is at about 500, or almost at 500 medical legal partnerships that really 
call themselves a medical legal partnership. So they have these MOUs in place and they are formally either working through referrals or perhaps you have the lawyer who is truly fully integrated into that healthcare organization. Um, in terms of the growth, we've actually seen the fastest rate of growth for these medical, these formalized medical legal partnerships at community health centers. But in fact, the, the model actually started, um, the formalized version of the model actually started in the hospital setting uh, with pediatricians. Um, but we're really happy to see the amount of growth that we're seeing right now, especially in response to uh, the pandemic and folks really looking at health inequities, social justice issues that very well could be addressed if we bring these titans um, across professions, including social services, uh, social workers together to really address in these various healthcare settings what folks really need to be able to get healthy. And so with that national perspective, Rakuya, I wanted to turn to you. You help run 11 of these partnerships uh, across the state of Indiana. And uh, the focus, as I recall it, is a term that Bethany just used, which is the social determinants of health. Uh, now, this is not a term I remember learning in law school. So I was hoping maybe first you could tell us a little bit, like, what does this term mean for you who's running a legal clinic uh, in, in the medical setting across the state of Indiana? For us, it means those factors that impact a patient's ability to get well and stay well. So things like personal stability, are they able to maintain a safe home, live in a safe environment? Are they in perhaps a rental home where things aren't um, kept up to standard and so that's impacting their health or their children's health? We look at things like income maintenance, are there public benefits that they are eligible for that they're maybe not aware of and maybe they're not receiving? We also look at things like expungement um, as a way of helping people gain employment so that they're able to have that financial stability and <clears throat> focus on their health instead of something from their past. So it's not something that I learned during law school either. Um, the National Center has been very helpful in helping enlighten me on how those social determinants of health impact our patients and clients. To that point, having not learned about it in law school and coming to it later, like, what, what was your gateway into this world? We began working with um, hospitals maybe 15 years ago, and it was a very organic process. We started seeing situations where people were coming to our office, and they were also having health issues as well. And so it's a matter of talking with healthcare providers like Dr. Hawk, who um, who are also seeing patients that are having issues that weren't being solved with the treatment that they were receiving, if there were other legal things that were causing them to um, be unable to follow their treatment plan. And it came together for me when I started working in an MLP setting and at meeting with patients, clients who would say things like, I had no idea this was a legal issue or um, working with a provider that said, I spent hours trying to get this landlord to fix this issue and you make a phone call and, and it's taken care of. So a light bulb went off for me and it said, um, I don't know how I was practicing law without making that connection. And once I made that connection, everything came together and it all made sense. 
Don, similar question for you. I, I assume, having not gone to medical school, that the term social determinants of health does come up at some point in your education process. But at what point did you learn about this relationship between, or, or decide to even go after working in this relationship between people's medical needs and their legal needs? You know, I, I've been actually, I graduated from medical school 30 years ago, and I can promise you there was not any discussion about social determinants of health back then. Now it is definitely um, a buzzword. And um, I also have exclusively been, spent my entire professional years in health centers and in primary care where we are exclusively focused on caring for those who might be a little bit more marginalized or are underinsured. Um, and so if you think about the, that mission and that kind of work, if you ask anyone, um, and they, they've been around since the 60s, I think we would all say very confidently, oh, you know, we were doing this work long before it was cool and, and hip to talk about. Um, we do feel very comfortable in that in that zone. So when somebody comes in for an appointment, I'm a pediatrician. So somebody comes in for an appointment and it's, um, you know, what normally would be a pretty quick visit for an ear infection, for example, in private practice setting. In my world, it's very different because maybe they don't speak English. Maybe they didn't have a ride to get there. Maybe the simple antibiotic that I'm going to prescribe, maybe they don't have a refrigerator to store it in, or maybe they don't, you know, like it just goes on and on. Maybe they don't have enough food to eat. So we say things like, oh, take your medicine with food. Well, you know, it just, everything is a little bit more complicated. So we, we have a skill set and a comfort level of being in that space. But I can tell you, it was only about maybe 10 years ago that the light bulb went off for me. So like what Rakuya was saying, when my when my boss came to me and said, hey, I heard about this new medical legal partnership thing. Do you want to try it? I'm like, yeah, sure, we'll pilot it. Um, why not? You know, it's, a, it's another service that we can offer our families. I had no idea how it would literally change my career, um, truly. I, I, it has started a whole new way for me to think about healthcare and what truly is health. And it's been very humbling because I can write prescriptions all day and it means nothing. It doesn't impact the health of people. What actually impacts their health is whether they have food and stable housing. And so it turns out that my little note that I write, um, you know, to try to uh, deal with the landlord issue, I feel like I'm being patted on the head. Like, oh, isn't that cute that she wrote that little note? But then, when I can turn to my new colleague, the attorney, and trust me, there were lots of jokes about doctor-lawyer relationships, um, and we still think they're funny. But uh, but now, when I can, at, when one of my families can and have a letter written with an attorney after it, man, stuff really starts to happen then. So it's been really a rewarding collaboration. So you were, it sounds like an early adopter, maybe in your community there in Indiana on the medical front. Uh, and I think of the medical profession much in the same way I think of the legal profession as one that knows better than everybody else and isn't interested in new ideas. Um, so I'm curious if uh, what type of pushback you saw in the medical field, like were, were doctors being like, this is nonsense, the last thing we need is more lawyers? No, I love this question because that's exactly, so here's what happened. So everyone was like, yeah, okay, great. It's an, you know, 
sure, we'll do that. And we'll, we'll pick a date and starting on this date, you know, we'll have this service now. And so with much anticipation and excitement, we declared this date. And so we checked back in with the team, like a couple of weeks later, and I was so excited to hear about the, you know, many, many hundreds of referrals that we had made to this program. And we had made zero. <laughs> zero referrals and I was just I was like how is that possible that we've made zero referrals and I think it really speaks to the um it was almost like we had to change our DNA and and we had to completely think differently as a medical professional in my usual day-to-day -day work and conversations with families to even begin to understand to think about, think in a whole new way about what may be at the core issue of why health outcomes were not improving. And so it really required us to have a big culture change. And that was not a flip of the switch and a new referral form that I was thinking was gonna be so easy. So we really had to go back to the drawing board and rethink about how we were gonna do this. And, um, so yeah, thanks for asking that because that was a big part of our story. Well, and that's actually something that I wanted to touch on today in, in some depth is like what building this relationship actually looks like between the medical and legal profession. So Rakuya, I, I'm curious when you started doing this, uh, what did embedding your staff into these communi in these medical communities for the first time look like? like what, what does the, the, the learning curve, the, the change of DNA, as, as Don put it, what did that look like? What did you have to do, I guess, to get the genome to look different? One, um, removing that I would call stigma of lawyers is being there just to sue. And um, a lot of our presentations, a lot of our meetings start off with explaining that we're not there to sue the hospital. And um, I usually we hear chuckles and sometimes sighs of relief. But, um, what we found is just starting off with that, we were able to connect, but then it was also really important to be able to get in front of as many members of that healthcare system team as possible to explain what the MLP is. Um, and then also having an open door, which would be if they're unsure whether it's a legal issue, um, send it to us, we'll let them know, we'll also walk through ways of issue spotting and becoming a part of the team as opposed to a person that's maybe sitting at a desk in a, in a room is really incorporating and working together. Jason, if I could add to that, because what Don and Rakuya mentioned, you know, you see playing out, I think, at the national level when, um, as Don mentioned, you know, when folks get it, right, I feel like the DNA is there. It's already there, I think, for both the medical profession and the legal profession. But often there's some sort of switch that turns on when uh, someone's either in the exam room or perhaps they're in your office and you're sitting at a case management meeting of some sort and you realize, wait a second, right? We're prescribing, 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 right? Just like Jack Geiger did for the health center movement. And he decided I'm prescribing all of the medications in the world. This is not what's actually gonna fix the problem. I need to write the prescription for food, right? And so the DNA is all, it has been there. It's just a matter of here's this partnership model and approach that allows one to, or the communities, right? To come together and sort of activate that DNA in a way that um, addresses their needs, which is to create 
uh, whether you're on the on the medical side the health the better health outcomes or you're on the legal side still in my opinion creating the better health outcomes but also you're looking at it from the justice perspective and then for the social work community I feel like they're like you guys where was your light bulb maybe you just needed did you could you not find the switch because they are the discipline and they've always gotten this they knew how to work that dna and actually put it uh to use um but i I think what um i also wanted to add is that you know what the what i hear dawn and rakuya also mentioning is not just this culture shift but there are also some like policy factors that were play to help to better i think um advance uh these models and allow for them to to come into being um and when we rakuya mentioned the hospital uh setting you know we still hear folks asking questions like what about the privacy issues that's a question that continues to come up, right? And that's a question that should continue to come up, whether it's data on the HIPAA side, on the medical side, or data as it relates to uh, attorney-client privilege, right? Or anything in between. Put the patient or the individual first, because that really is about protecting them and creating those better health and other outcomes for them in general. Um, but, th- you know, there are some, still some policy and environmental factors that allow for these um partnerships to flourish, but also um, that can be uh, better and that are out there that can enable these partnerships to continue to, to play out. So I think the social work community, right, has always had this DNA and they knew how to activate it for the longest time. And uh, while the medical community and the legal community um, you know, the DNA has been there. It was just a matter of like breaking through some of the noise, breaking through some of those policy hurdles and very valid concerns about the patients slash clients or individuals in the communities that are already vulnerable and at risk and ensuring that all of the boxes are checked to continue to protect them. I think, you know, that's what we continue to see playing out, but it's getting better. I think the policy environment is certainly getting better. And, um, you know, I will note that I often look at the civil legal services community and compare uh, the community health centers as uh, the twin on the health side. Um, uh, but, you know, I do I do want to make sure right? I, I don't want to discount the fact that the the example of the formalized medical legal medical legal partnership model really started in that hospital setting. Um, but, the, uh, you know, I want to really just highlight the health centers and speaking of policy environments, right, their mission and mandate uh, for community health centers is not just about providing that medical home, but also looking at what's called enabling services. And if it weren't for that policy uh, in place, um, you know, they would probably face some of the, you know, um, longer strides that are required to be able to make that culture shift. Uh, so that was, that was just the point I wanted to make about the policy environment, the policies at play that really help these medical legal partnerships flourish. Um, and I do think it's getting better, um, but also there's still a long way to go. And that's the next place that I think MLPs are going, which is not just looking at the individual interventions, but going, you know, deeper into that greater systemic change, looking at clinical interventions, looking at things that can then go all the way out to for that broad impact um, beyond just the individual communities, but around the country and look at policy level changes. That re- that's when you really cause that reverberating effect that um, we can say, yes, we have, we, the big collective, we have a win. At the local culture change level, Don, I'm, I'm curious 
um, we heard from Rocchio, like what the lawyers have to do when they come in. Um, on the medical side, do you all, I mean, I presume you need to learn how to issue spot like we all do in our first year of law school and you need to learn to ask questions differently to get at whether something's a legal question or, or a legal problem or not. I'm curious to what that looks like on your end. Uh, we definitely had uh, a little learning curve. We had some training. We had a, a, an acronym to kind of help us remember um, what, what sort of things would have um, maybe a legal implication. We had some vocabulary words to, to learn. I, you know, one thing when um, Bethany was talking, it reminded me, one of, the, one of the stumbling blocks that we had at the very beginning was related to um, the, the confidentiality concerns. So we overcorrected to the point where if I made a referral, so remember we had zero referrals at the very beginning, right? So I'm just trying to get anybody to do anything. And so when we finally started having a trickling in of, of some referrals, from my perspective, what would happen is I would make a referral and then that would be it. I would never hear another thing because we wanted to protect everyone's privacy. Well, that doesn't work well for us because all the other times that we make referrals to anybody, whether it's a cardiologist, or a social worker, we always heard something back. And then that positive reinforcement that, oh, thank goodness you referred this family because you know they need heart surgery or they need you know whatever, we were missing that feedback loop. And so we regrouped and we tried to figure out how we could continue to respect privacy, but also reinforce this notion that this collaboration is gonna require communication between these two different professionals that aren't used to sharing information. And that I think was the next big step towards our success because once, once an individual physician learned that their referral resulted in a, an actual tangible outcome that was extremely rewarding, more rewarding than uh, diagnosing uh, pneumonia and treating it correctly or whatever, um, then that's when it took off. And then exponentially, we were able to really kind of lean into this whole thing. You mentioned an acronym to help you remember uh, what legal issues to go at. What was the acronym out of curiosity? Help, actually. It's what you just said. And I'm going to, Bethany, can you help me remember this? Yeah, I was, I was wondering if you were talking about the IHELP acronym. Yes. Yeah, so that's certainly from the, my predecessors who really, you know, helped to create this thing called Medical Legal Partnership. It's IHELP. And so um, we have a chart on our website because it is trademarked and we like to show it off. And I'm really glad that Dawn verified that that is the thing that I thought she was talking about. IHELP. Yeah. And it really goes down, you know, what you're probably guessing, I, income, insurance, um, H for, you know, the, your housing issues, E for your employment related issues, and then you can go on to legal status and then um, uh, pers more personal uh, related issues uh, like families and, and stuff. So, and I've seen MLP, so Dawn probably used it and um, perhaps at that medical legal partnership or what Rakuya is talking about, you know, you see folks around the country really adding, you know, a little bit more definition around that. And I think that's awesome because hopefully people will help to uncover some other letter <laughs> in I help that we were missing or some other word within the acronym that we were missing. I, I think it's awesome. 
And so then to stay with you for a second, Bethany, you know, there's a lot of research out of LSC and plenty of others that have found the vast majority of low and middle income people don't mm. know their problem is a legal problem. Yes. Are MLPs a part of the solution to that yes. issue? Yes. Okay. Yeah. You all know I will say yes, but I think this is beyond medical legal partnership, right? I think this is also, you know, when, when folks talk about when you picture a lawyer in your mind, right, your mind probably goes directly to what Hollywood or media, you know, has portrayed for years, the Perry Masons, the, I don't know how far back you can go, right? We do the Socratic method in law school, so you can go all the way back. But I think, you know, the problem is um, too many people don't know what a lawyer does and then definitely don't know what civil legal services does, which is why when the Rakuyas of the world go to the Dons of the world and say, hey, we want to bring lawyers into the healthcare setting, their minds either go to one of two places. Oh, can you help me with a compliance issue? Or, ah, like who's suing me, right? So if the general public, and I really do mean the individuals who really do need all of these services first and foremost, and the same thing goes, to, there's an argument to be made that the same thing is experienced by healthcare as well, right? There are a lot of these assumptions made about uh, healthcare and that, that poses the barriers, the true barriers to accessing these services. But for civil legal services in particular, I, there's a whole lot of work that needs to be done to educate, um, not be patronizing, sir, treat the public as teachable and worth learning what civil legal services does, right? If we talk about lawyers and free lawyers, one's mind should not just automatically default to thinking of public defenders. There's an entire body of civil legal services attorneys out there who very well deserve to have the work that they do known because they've been there through every downturn, the Great Recession, they've been there through the HIV AIDS crisis and ensuring that patients that needed some sort of um, end of life care had it right. We've been there through and through over the decades. And then when you bring these disciplines together, this is why we say, this is why I say at least legal care is healthcare. I didn't say legal care is medical care. I say legal care is healthcare. And I do think the WHO might agree because they talk about the social determinants of health, right? They don't say the social determinants of medicine, they talk about the social determinants of health. Um, but the, I, I, you know, you started to question what is MLP a solution? Yes, because when you do bring these disciplines together and you show what else lawyers can do and someone who feels the pain in their body goes to the healthcare setting and that that physician or that nurse or that MA is saying, oh, you know, we have a medical legal partnership. How about I refer you to the, the lawyer in the community? That's the immediate education point. That person may not have known at all about civil legal services and that continues to carry out over and over and over. Whereas without the partnership in place, that probably would not have occurred at all. And I think we can take advantage of the trust between um, a family and their primary care team. Mm -hmm. That's probably honestly the biggest value that we bring because we do have that. There's a lot of other things that we, <laughs> that we mess up, but we're really good at the trust thing with our families. And so I think it is, <laughs> you know, the first time where I ever mention it to somebody, you know, gosh, let me let you talk to the attorney that's on our healthcare team. And their eyes just, their, their eyebrows go up and they're like, what are you talking about? But then when we're the one to help connect those dots and it's coming from us and maybe, you know, maybe I've been taking care of their kids for 15 years. And so that matters. And that also mm -hmm. helps make it happen. 
Don, I want to stay with you for a second and, and shift subject a little bit. Uh, one of the things that I could not find an answer to in the prep for this show was what the role, if at all, health insurers should be playing in MLPs. I don't know that I'm much of an expert on inch payers, but I will tell you that um, there is an increased awareness of all of the social determinants of health and the impact that they have on outcomes. And as any, any insurance company knows, um, if they can pay up front for something to prevent a bigger healthcare expenditure down the way, they're usually interested in learning what that is. And so there are a lot more conversations now around this thing called value-based care, which gets away from this idea that the only thing that should get paid for is a traditional medical office visit face-to-face -face for 10 minutes. And that's all it gets paid for. Because right now what gets, what gets paid for is what gets done, unfortunately. And we know that there's a lot more in between visit kind of work that involves a lot of partnerships like this one um, that actually has way more impact on health outcomes. So there are um, examples where Medicaid um, and even some third party commercial insurance companies are paying a lot more attention to this now. So I'm very hopeful for the future um, and I don't think the future is that far away, but, um, but I'm guarded about it because it's, you know, we talk about this a lot. So the, you think it is possible in the future that the type of service being provided by a program like Rakuya's could be charged to medical insurance? Yeah, I do. I'd love to hear what my colleagues think, but I, you know, just the fact that, um, you know, Bethany mentioned the word enabling services. I remember the day when, um, MLP was officially declared as an enabling service because in my world and in, in the health center world, that is the first step towards recognizing that they're a critical part of the healthcare team and um, ultimately being reimbursed for the work that we're doing. So again, it's very important for uh, the, it, it, to all of this to become less doctor centric. It really is about the whole team, including outside the walls of our health center. Bethany, would you like to add anything to that? I couldn't agree more. <laughs> it was politely allowing my colleagues to, um, you know, respond. Um, I do think we see more and more of this movement, though, in the Medicaid space, um, which is particularly helpful for medical legal partnerships because they serve low-income um, patient populations. Um, often who are uh, either already uh, covered by Medicaid or certainly eligible for Medicaid and CHIP. Um, and it's promising to see, uh, I think, each year where CMS um, in particular will, as they did, I think, in, in January uh, of this year, um, put out a state health officials letter that reminded the uh, states that uh, as they look at Medicaid and CHIP, uh, there are various existing policy mechanisms already in place that can be used to uh, support and finance the social determinants of health. And so we've seen some states actually uh, very progressively um, uh, move in this space uh, at the state level uh, as a Medicaid agency and also with their managed care uh, organizations. So they may build into the MCO uh, contract and bidding process that 
social determinants of health interventions uh, must be included. And that's where you see uh, MLPs, uh, you know, taking full advantage as they should of those um, policy driven approaches that states are taking to better address uh, cost and value and actually bringing about health, right? We've been saying over and over social determinants of health. And so like, what are you doing to actually be able to address it? You can um, design all you want, but then you have to look at what is happening in the financing space, the payer space, the reimbursement space. And we do see, I think, payers um, and states are payers as well, right? But st uh, states and plans and also in Medicare and Medicare Advantage plans are also looking at social determinants of health and really saying, how can we look at our patient populations, our pools of the uh, beneficiaries that we cover to actually address what we know and have known thanks to this term called social terms of health they have actually always needed. And, and you know, we're, we're here recording this during the pandemic and, and, I, and I can't help, it would be remiss of me to not mention, right, that, you know, throughout the pandemic, we uh, recognized that, you know, all of these, these inequities uh, in the system were laid bare, right? We keep saying that over and over, these inequities were laid bare. And so I think the pandemic helped to accelerate some of that. And you saw, for example, in the space of telehealth, some of the inequities play out and finally be addressed. So we knew that telehealth took a uh, decades, right, <laughs> to um, become uh, made available, you know, uh, throughout various plans into uh, patient populations that were or were not covered. Uh, and then throughout the pandemic, the first thing was, can we make telehealth available by video? That's not enough. Some people don't have these smartphones with videos or laptops and, and, and the likes, right? You've got to make it available by telephone. Next question, right, in the policy space. And this, this is where, you know, the, this is what actually plays out on the ground. Uh, the next question is like, well, how are you reimbursing this to make sure that it's actually sustainable? And I feel like that's where we all are next is really looking at this long-term sustainability, which is why I was really excited <laughs> that you posed this question to Don. And there are a lot of challenges there. And as we wrap up, Rukuya, I wanted to end with you. And I'm curious just to get your thoughts on how should we be judging your program and programs like yours? What does success look like? Is it resolution of a legal matter? Is it resolution of a medical matter? Uh, is it quality of life? How should we be thinking about this going forward? We should be looking at all of those things. Um, the work that we do and together as a team has a long-term impact not only on the patient's health, often has a long-term impact, positive impact on their household altogether. And that trickles out to the community. So it can start with you're helping the patient in front of you, but it, it benefits um, an entire community because there are people that they're coming in contact with. They're able to um, give back in ways that they weren't able to do before. We can look at the data that we collect to see whether that patient is visiting their um, physician more frequently or less frequently after our intervention. In terms of the mental health benefit to an MLP intervention, feedback that we've often received from patients is one, um, there are times when they weren't really able to see beyond the current situation. They weren't sure what tomorrow would bring. And so the MLP impact is that we're giving people the ability to see beyond today and see a future, which is very, very important when we're facing a pandemic and, and housing um, is such an issue. So 
I say judge to the MLPs by all of that, all of the great things that we're doing and all of the long-term positive impact that they're having. Well, and not only it seems like my takeaway from this conversation is not only is it positive in regards to the future of the individuals that get services here, but my takeaway from you three is that the future of MLPs generally seems bright. I come away optimistic. You, you've illustrated problems ahead, but none of them seem daunting to you, or at least none of you seem to have firmly planted your head against the wall and left it there. So that uh, fills me with, with, with some optimism. With, with that, I'd like to thank Bethany, Don, and Rakuya for being with us today on Talk Justice. And I'd like to give a special thank you to Josh Meltzer, who proposed today's topic. For links to what we discussed today, check out our show notes. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jason Taché, and for everyone here at Talk Justice, thank you for listening. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent a legal services corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on the podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.